I'm Cal Newport, and this is a Deep Questions Listener Calls mini-episode. Let's start with quick announcements. As you just heard, I am trying out a different name for these Thursday mini-episodes of the podcast. Up till now, I've been calling these Habit Tune-Up mini-episodes, but I realized the thing that distinguishes the Thursday episodes from the Monday episodes is not so much the content. In both cases, I'm answering questions, and many of those questions have to do with people's habits. It's the fact that on Thursday, I do voice calls, whereas on Monday, in the longer episodes, I'm answering written questions. So I figured, why not give this a more accurate name that might be a little bit more compelling when you see it in your feed, listener calls, because that's what I do on Thursdays. They're shorter episodes, and I'm just taking listener calls. If you think this is a bad idea or you have a better suggestion, you can always send me a note at interesting at calnewport.com. Other quick announcement. I mentioned on Monday's episode that with some trepidation, I am trying a clubhouse conversation just so I can see what that technology is like and what I think about it. I'm doing it Thursday night. So this episode comes out Thursday morning. This is only relevant if you are getting this episode earlier in the day on the day it comes out, which is Thursday, April 1st. But later today at 3 p.m., I'm doing a Clubhouse chat with the New York Times tech reporter, Kevin Roos. If you are on Clubhouse, whatever that means, there is a link to the event in the show notes for this show. So, you know, if you're getting this in time and if you use Clubhouse and if you're around the three, come because I don't really know what this is, and I would prefer it not to be an empty virtual crowd if possible. All right, looking ahead to today's episode, we've got a good collection of questions. We have two different questions about the same topic, which is how do you organize and prioritize large but non-urgent projects? So by answering two different questions on this topic, we can really get deep into the weeds here. Also, some interesting work-from-home questions, such as what you should wear when you're working from home and someone looking for advice about how to trick out their work-from-home space to be much more conducive to deep work. So these should be some good questions. If you want to ask your own questions, go to calnewport.com slash podcast to learn how. And while you're there, sign up for my mailing list at calnewport.com so you can get my famed weekly essay, which I have been sending out to my readers since 2007 if you can believe it. So I'm excited about this show, but before we go any farther, let me take a brief moment to talk about one of the sponsors that makes Deep Questions possible, and that is Stamps.com. Now, this is a true story. Just 30 minutes before I started recording this podcast, I was having lunch with my wife, and the place where we were eating, shout out to Tacoma Bevco, is right near the post office. And she remembered when she saw the post office, oh, I have these shoes I have to return. I forgot to bring them with me. And my immediate response was, oh, you should use stamps.com. It's a perfect case study for stamps.com. Just when you're at home, you could have just printed out that label, scheduled a pickup, and someone would have come and picking up those shoes. No need to remember them. No need to walk and wait in line at the post office. So it was a great case study for a great service. Now, how does stamps.com work? Well, You sign up, it's a subscription service, but a cheap subscription service. It allows you to use your computer to print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. And once you're ready, you just schedule a pickup or drop-off. It also now works with UPS, so you can print that UPS postage right from your computer. 
you get 40% up to 40% off post office rates and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. So you make back that small subscription fee almost immediately if you send even just one or two things. It's a no-brainer, right? Saves you time, saves you money. This is why there's close to a million small businesses who already use stamps.com. All right, so there's no risk. And if you use my promo code DEEP when you sign up at stamps.com, you will get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and the digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. You go to stamps.com and then you click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. And then you type in DEEP that stamps.com promo code DEEP and to get that four-week free trial, free postage, and the digital scale, stamps.com, never go to the post office again. All right, so let's get rolling with our questions. The first one, as promised, is about projects. Hi, Cal. My name is Ruba. I'm a graduate student, and my question is about uh, managing various writing projects that are going on at the same time. So I'm a... I'm writing my dissertation. I'm writing two book chapters as well as a paper. The deadlines are all close to each other, uh, so prioritization is a little difficult. And I have to write editorials for a fellowship every few weeks. So I have a lot of writing projects that I need to manage. And my question is about trying to figure out how to organize my writing because I know the early part of the day is the best in terms of energy and focus. So what is a tried and tested way that is efficient uh, and works? Uh, because I'm wondering whether I should dedicate some time every day for each project. But then again, my concern would be switching tasks would consume more energy and be lead to burnout. Well, first of all, I want to reassure you, I know as a graduate student, the load of writing projects you have might seem overwhelming or somewhat scary, but I can tell you that from a, a, a professor perspective, that load of writing obligations is pretty normal. So you can think about what's happening now. It's not a, uh, an unusual, scary, or bad occurrence. You got way too overloaded. You're actually are just graduating from a grad student towards a professor-style load. So, so don't be scared. Don't be scared of this load you have. It's absolutely manageable. Professors do it all the time. So how do we manage it? Well, because all these deadlines are similar, you can't deploy the, the simple and crude heuristic that most people use, which is, uh-oh, something's due soon. Let me drop everything and give it a lot of time. That can work when you're a grad student and maybe you're just working on one paper. Ooh, the deadline's coming up. Let's drop everything and get it done. You can't do that. You have four things due around the same time. So the thing to really lean into, at least in my opinion at this point, is going to be your semester slash weekly plans. This is where you move around the pieces on the chessboard that is your time. You figure out how are everything that needs to get done, how is it going to be done? With the load you have right now, this professorial load, you have to play that chess game if you're going to get things done on time and at a high level of quality. So here's how this will look. Let's say it's the beginning of a week. You're looking at the week ahead. You're going to build your weekly plan. One of the first things you do is you look at your semester plans. And here on your semester plans, where it's going to be clearly spelled out, my dissertation chapter is due, this book chapter is due, this article is due. These big rocks in your professional life are, are 
clearly listed there and discussed so you know about them. Seeing everything together, by the way, at this semester level might also lead to scheduling alterations where you say, you know, once I write this all out, this is too much. I don't think I'm going to make this fit. So I need to delay this till next semester. I need to say no to the editor. I can't do this book chapter. Or this is going to have to be a project for the spring. You can see everything. So one of the big parts of moving around the pieces on the chessboard that is your schedule is actually figuring out which pieces you want to take off the board altogether. It's hard to make those decisions until you see them all out in front of each other. All right. So let's say you've done that and what's left is what you need to do. Now you can say, what's the status of each of these projects? Look at your week, look at your meetings, look at your appointments, look at, you know, I'm gone at a doctor's appointment all day, Thursday, look at all of the time in your week. And it might be less than you realize and ask, how am I going to make progress on the things I need to make progress on and be ready for that answer to be highly idiosyncratic by which I mean fit to the realities of the week in front of you. So you're looking at a particular week. You might say, okay, Hmm. My afternoons are crowded. I'm kind of on a roll. Like if I really just pushed for one week, I could probably get this book chapter done. So why don't I take every morning, like you suggested every morning, I'm going to do eight to 10 30 every single morning. Oh, there's just one day where I have something at 10. I'm going to cancel that. So I can just do this here. I'll put in my weekly plan, eight to 10 30 book chapter reading. Uh, and I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to do it at home uh, because there's a, a particular table, you know, I like to work at by the window that I only use for deep work. And okay, that's what I'm doing for that. And if I'm, I do need to get my citations together for my, if I get my citations together on this dissertation chapter, then I could get it back to my advisor to review. So let me actually block out and put on my weekly plan uh, and block out Wednesday afternoon. That's when I'm really going to do those citations. Okay. That's really all I have time for this week. The next week might be completely different. The next week might be, you know what? I'm going to cancel this one thing I have on Monday. So it's completely free all day, Monday, all day, Monday is doing my report for my fellowship or, uh, pushing until I get a good draft of my article to send to my collaborators. I promised it to them on Tuesday. What I'm trying to emphasize here is how you are fitting, how you make progress on these big rocks to the week in front of you in advance. The semester plan lets you know what you should be working on and tries to keep that a tractable load. You see that every week. You look at the reality of your week and figure out what's the right way. How am I going to deploy these pieces on the board this week? What is the right way to make progress? And you're working backwards from the deadline. So in your semester plan, you see, oh, all these things are due in June. That's what allows you when you're in March and building your weekly plan to be like, man, I'm going to really push on this thing that's due in June right now because I'm just looking at the way this is going to play out. I only have so much time and I'm on vacation this week and I really got to start making progress now. If by the time I get to June, this will be done, this will be done, this will be done, and this will be done. This is where you have to get once you get to a professorial level of work is that you have to start things in advance. You got to find time where it's going to be. You have to be very intentional about your time. You have to be willing to work on things over multiple months. Four or five things interleaved over multiple months with each week looking potentially different than the last to make sure that all the pieces come together. This type of multi-level planning methodology is how these type of decisions are made. So be very clear about what you need to get done, its status, and when it's due. Then every week, make the best plan you can for that week. Don't try to come up with the best plan for all work at all times, especially when you have so many different things going on. If you put in that planning time, you'll be surprised by how much stuff you can concurrently get done amid an otherwise chaotic and hard to predict schedule. All right, so I like this theme of projects. So let's do one more question about the general topic. Hey, Cal, it's Nick. Um, I have a question about 
prioritizing your time when your career is largely project-based. Um, do you ever feel stuck at having a few ideas for projects you really like, but are unsure how to prioritize which one to focus on first? Thanks. Well, Nick, first things first, like I discussed in the previous question, the home for the projects you are currently working on should be in your semester or quarterly plan, depending on what you call it, where it's very clear, I'm working on this, I'm working on this. Having to see your active projects all in one place forces you to be realistic about what's on your plate. It forces you to have not too many projects. It forces you to triage your attention and say, this is what I really want to spend it on. Okay. The question then becomes, once you know I have limited slots and here's where I list those slots, what do you put into those slots? How does something earn its place if you have some open slots to add new projects? And here my advice is to procrastinate. You know, I wrote an article years ago. Years ago, I wrote an article for my friend Ramit Sethi's blog. And it was called something like, Don't Get Started. And my argument is we're too, we're too quick to get started on things. Actually, when it comes to a project, we should, in general, probably not get started. Think about it a little bit more. Drag your feet a little bit more. Find out more about it. Read more about it. Think about it. Daydream about it. See if it sticks around. See if it, it remains something that really interests you. See if you're really becoming more convinced that it's a good idea or less convinced. Take your time. Because once something has actually earned its way onto your project list, then you need to give it some real attention. It demands attention. You have to take that project list and your quarterly or semester plan seriously. You have to each week when building your weekly plan, say, how do I make progress on the things in here? It's going to take a lot of your time. It's going to take a lot of your attention. You do not want to do this casually. So take your time. This is the way I am. So you'll see something like me starting a podcast. Well, you know, I thought about that for a long time. My default was, why don't I just wait a little bit longer? Maybe it's not such a great idea. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. And what I look for is, oh, over time, do, does it become clear and clear that that's what I need to be doing or not? And eventually it did, so I started the podcast. Same thing with books. It may look like I write a lot of books, but you don't realize how much time I spend thinking about books and book ideas months and months, sometimes years, before I am finally will realize, you know what, this thing has not gone away. I become very comfortable thinking about this as being what I'm going to write next. By the time I actually, let's say, put together a proposal for a book, it almost feels like fait accompli. You know, this this decision's already been made. I already know what I'm going to do. There's nothing left to be decided. Of course, I'm going to write this book. Now it's just inevitable. So that's what I'm arguing for here. I mean, obviously, if you're talking about a relatively small project, you don't have to spend years thinking about it, but don't just throw something on your list when it excites you. Try it on for size. Give it a few weeks. Give it a month. If it's still something very exciting to you, then put it on your list. At that point, I would say have a clear milestone and you say, I'm going to push towards this milestone, come hell or high water. Let's at least get to this milestone so that we give this project a chance, and then you can reassess. So you might say, look, I'm going to do this thing for six weeks. I'm going to try out this new, going to join this gym for six months, whatever it is. You know, give it a reasonable amount of time for you to actually gain some traction and then give it serious attention. So that's, that's the way I think about projects is be very wary about starting them. Once you do start them, now you got to be relentless. Give it energy again and again and again. Give it a chance and see where it leads you. All right, let's shift gears here to something perhaps a little lighter. Hey, Cal, this is Philip speaking from Stuttgart, Germany. I have a question regarding working from home. 
I am currently writing my master thesis and spend a lot of time at home during the corona lockdown. My question is, what should I wear? I find myself wearing jogging pants uh, often in the week and sometimes I wear jeans because I, I built the habit of having walks during the day and when I go out I wear uh, proper jeans or uh, proper other trousers but I find myself enjoying uh, very comfortable um, jogging pants when working. Well, Philip, I don't care much what you wear when you're working from home. For me, what's important is the ritual with which you begin and end your workday when your location does not substantially change. Now, the complication here is that for some people, the ritual they build about beginning and ending their work from home day involves clothes. So for some people, changing into more of a work wardrobe marks the distinction between the morning and work, and then they change back into something more comfortable after the workday is over. But your ritual need not be clothes-related. I'm a big proponent, for example, in virtual commutes for people who work from home. Commutes are a pain in the sense that if you're stuck in traffic, it can be frustrating, but they also serve a psychological benefit. It gives you this liminal period in which you can psychologically transform your mind from an at-home configuration to an at-work configuration. Then when you're driving home, you can do the opposite. Let me reconfigure my mind from a working configuration to an at-home configuration. This can be quite good, quite good for helping you recharge and get more value out of your time outside of work. So if you're working from home, simulate a commute. This is maybe an, a more comfortable option than dressing up for working from home. I think walks are good. Typically, when I talk about a virtual commute, it's a particular walking route that you go on each morning. You finish breakfast, you drink your coffee, you go on this walking route. It is like you're driving to work. The route ends with you coming right into wherever you work at home and starting your workday. You do something similar on the other end. You go for a walk, you notice the birds, you say, ah, oh, the leaves are coming in on the trees or what have you. When that walk is over you are done with your workday. It doesn't have to be a walk. Like some people, maybe you get, you do exercise on the rowing machine. Maybe it's you, you read a book in a, a certain place. You go out to your garden and sit among the butterflies and enjoy your tea, whatever it is. I just think having a set ritual you do the begin and end each workday is really what's important here. The only other thing I will add is that, of course, that end of day ritual should include a, a, a shutdown process. Right, a shutdown ritual should be a part of your larger end-of-day ritual where you go through all your open loops, make sure everything's taken care of, you're not missing anything, all your inboxes have been processed, so there's no task that you're holding just in your head that you're worried about forgetting. You look at your plan for the week, you look at your calendar for tomorrow, you make sure that you are on track for what needs to be done, and then you check that shutdown complete checkbox in your time block planner so that your mind knows, okay, I really don't have to worry about work. I did a whole shutdown process. I'm not missing anything. So make sure that your end of day ritual includes that shutdown complete, that shutdown checkbox ritual. And more generally, just have the same thing you do at the beginning and end of each work from home day. And that should be what you need. If you want to change your clothes as part of that, fine. If you don't, that's fine too. I will tell you here at the Deep Work HQ, I have a single button down shirt that I put on to do all my virtual talks, a lot of my virtual podcast appearances, and it goes right back on the hanger 
right back in the closet when I'm done. So yes, I am not dressing up to do my virtual work each day. I know other people like to do it. That's all taste, but just have some sort of division between work and non-work if you do not actually change your physical location between those two states. Let's take a brief moment to talk about Grammarly. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to learn how to express yourself clearly. My entire writing career is really built upon clear communication. I'm often taking an idea that's relatively obvious, but I'm just very clear in making the case for it, and that's what catches people's attention. Now, I've had editors help me clarify my writing, teach me over the years how to use the right words and how to get to the point and get away from unnecessary or excessive verbiage. Not everyone has access to an editor. That's where Grammarly comes in, and in particular, their product, Grammarly Premium. This is a paid subscription service. You can run it on your desktop. You can run it on your phone. You can run it on your iPad. You can run it with all the apps where you write. Outlook, Gmail, Twitter, LinkedIn, Word, whatever it is. And what it does is it looks at your writing and helps make it clearer. This is not just grammar mistake correction. It will actually give you suggestions about how to write more concise sentences, how to avoid unnecessary or redundant words. It will even look at your vocabulary and say, look, why don't we avoid this overused word or phrase over here? It'll make your writing more engaging. This is the type of feedback us professional writers get from professional editors. With Grammarly Premium, you can get this same feedback on all of the writing you do on all of the devices that you use. So if you want to do more than just spell check, if you want to learn how to express yourself clearly, you should check out Grammarly Premium. Now, if you sign up at grammarly.com slash deep, you will get 20% off. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash deep. I also want to talk about policy genius. Insurance is one of these things that you have to have, but it's expensive. And you sort of know in the back of your mind this might be something I could save money on, but it's too complicated to figure it out. I can't go call insurance companies and try to figure out if there's better rates. So you just settle paying more money than you need to. That is where Policy Genius enters the scene. Here's how it works you go to policygenius.com, you answer a few quick questions about yourself, your property, and Policy Genius takes it from there. It will go and automatically compare rates for the type of coverage you need for things like your house and your car. It'll talk to America's top insurers from Progressive to Allstate to find what's the lowest quotes. Their algorithm will look for ways to maximize savings, including bundles. And if it can find a better rate, it will come back and say, here's how much you can save and we will switch you over for free if you're interested. Policy Genius has saved their customers up to $1,000 per year compared to their older policies. All it takes is one visit to the site to figure out how much you could save. So head to policygenius.com right now to get started. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. All right, our next question here is about maintaining your focus during mini delays. Hello, I'm a software developer, and I occasionally find myself running into this issue where the code base that I'm working on um, either takes a long time to build or some other service we're relying on has intermittent issues um, or the tests take a few minutes to run. 
So I'm trying to do a deep work focus session, but I have periods where I'm working for two to three minutes and then waiting for one to two minutes to verify the work. I'm not really having trouble with distraction during this downtime. So, I mean, I'm not going to Facebook or whatever, but even so, uh, these long wait times feel like a context switch. Like my brain goes somewhere else, even if I'm just sitting here staring at the compiler output. Uh, and it makes working on this stuff mentally fatiguing for me. When it comes to taking breaks in the middle of a deep work session, some activities are worse than others when it comes to the context switching damage that it induces. So when it comes to things that are bad, the things you really want to avoid during these brief breaks, uh, one is social requests that you can't resolve. So this is why email inboxes are sort of the worst thing to look at when you just have a couple minutes to spare, because what you're going to see in an email inbox is messages from people you know and work with who need things from you that you can't answer in the moment. Our brains hate that. If you expose your brain to social requests that you then ignore and go back to what you're trying to do, like writing code, there's a big part of your brain that says, no, 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 Bob needs us. And it's going to be very hard to get your attention back. So email inboxes or glancing at an active Slack channel, that can be killer. Emotionally charged information is also a real killer in terms of rapidly or aggressively shifting your cognitive context. This is why social media can be a problem. Now, let me just glance at my phone while I'm waiting for the compiler to compile, because when you look at Twitter, for example, you're probably going to see something that's been algorithmically amplified because it's going to push a button. It's going to make you mad. It's going to make you laugh. It's going to make you happy. It's going to make you sad, whatever. It's not going to leave you probably emotionally neutral. And that's really distracting to try to bring your attention back from. It's going to take more effort, take longer to get your focus back to the task, like writing code that you were at that you were doing before. The third thing to avoid is exposing yourself to information or tasks that is similar to what you're currently doing, but not the same thing. So if you're waiting for your current compile cycle to finish, if you jump over to look at the source code for another project, you know, that also can be very confusing and killer because it's the same type of work, but different. Different objectives, different things going on, different goals for the code, and, and that can cause a lot of confusion as well. So you want to avoid those three things. If you avoid those three things, you're somewhat minimizing the cost. Now, if you want to go even farther, let's say you're doing these compile cycles a lot, like maybe the way you, you like to write your code is every little change you like to compile and see if it worked. Uh, advanced hack for really preserving your cognitive context is to have a physical distraction that you can jump over to during the compile session that will keep you away from other types of thinking, other cognitive contexts, and just pull from a part of your brain that's very different than the part of the brain that you're using to think about computer code. The real classic example of this is get a basketball hoop on your door. I am shooting shots at the hoop while I'm waiting for the compile to happen, or a dartboard. I am throwing darts, trying to get better at hitting this dartboard. It really can preserve quite a bit of cognitive context just because it gives you something to focus on that is using a different part of the brain. All right, so I hope that's helpful. More generally, I think it's useful to keep in mind those three things when it comes to taking breaks during deep work. The type of break matters. If you glance at an inbox or social media, that's going to be a problem, much more so than if you, I don't know, check on the baseball scores. And physical activity is a great way to, to keep your mind occupied without actually drastically changing the relevant networks that you already have 
queued up and ready to go for the cognitive work that you're in the middle of. All right, I think we have time here for one more listener call. Hello, Kel. I have a question. I get to a new workplace soon and wanted to ask you how to set it up so that it by itself is an inspiring workplace. What would you do or consider doing? I want to construct my personal deep workstation at my office, for example, light or quotations on the bulletin board. And I would appreciate any inspirational tips to build it up for deep focus. Thank you. Well, it's a good question because I'm going through something similar right now as I complete the decoration of my deep work HQ with my eye towards having more visitors here. I'm, I'm finally getting around the finishing decoration, as I mentioned in Monday's episode. This means, among other things, I'm trying to set up my library here in the HQ to be more conducive to deep work. So I'm thinking about these questions. Here's a few things I think are relevant. One, organization is key. The office needs to be organized and neat. There needs to be a place for everything. You need to be able to clean your desk and get to a state of organization where you see no clutter. You see nothing being stored in a pile, nothing that's just sort of haphazardly on a surface. That you can very easily get to a state of my books are on my shelves, my papers are filed, I have inboxes for things that need to be processed, I have a bunch of notebooks and a, a nice container full of fresh pins that I can use just waiting for me to use them. Why does this matter? Well, that mise-en-place source of sense of organization allows your mind to feel organized. It allows your mind to say, okay, I can focus on the work ahead of me. This is a place from a cognitive aesthetics perspective in which structured thought can happen. I think that really matters. Another thing I might think about is your walls. Hang things. Don't have blank walls. And hang things that are meaningful. Now, you mentioned inspirational quotes, but you might want to go even deeper than this. It could be artwork or scenic pictures or what have you that capture things that you intellectually find to be important. It could be artwork from an artist you admire or artwork that puts you in a certain state of mind. It could be posters or artwork related to certain works of literature or music that is important to you. It could be photographs of places, scenic places that you associate with deep thought or reflection. What you're really trying to do here is set, and again, I'm going back to this term of cognitive aesthetics. You're trying to set a cognitive aesthetics of, this is a place where I take thought seriously, I take intellectual pursuits seriously. This all seems minor, but it makes a difference. It really sets the mode that your mind is going to be in. Also care a lot about your lighting. You don't want to just work under blank, bright white fluorescent lighting when you're doing something deep. I'm a big fan in warm white light, especially spotlight. So kind of spotlight on the desk where I'm working in my notebook with some other accent lights in the room. So real lamps with real bulbs that you can switch to. Now you don't want these on all the time. I like to switch when I'm at my Georgetown office. I switch to that lighting when I'm doing something deep. When I'm having a meeting with students or doing non-deep stuff, then I might just have the fluorescence on. So I think lights make a big difference. It can really help the aesthetics there. And finally, maybe throw some plants in there. For whatever reason, I just think that helps. Have more plants than you think you need. Uh, it brings out some sort of deeper human instinct, I guess. There's just something about being in a place with a bunch of plants that puts you in a nice reflective mindset. So those would be the main things you should do. Um, and of course, you should add, in addition, one of those novelty grenades 
where there's a complaint department, take a number, and there's a number hanging off the pin. That should be front and center in your desk because everyone finds that really funny. So let's reprioritize here. Priority one, complaint department grenade. Priority two, getting the cognitive aesthetics into a place that tells your mind this is a place where structured thinking occurs. And in the context of this episode, this is a good place to wrap things up. Thank you to everyone who submitted their listener calls. To find out how you can submit your own voice question, go to calnewport.com slash podcast. I'll be back Monday with the next full-length episode of the show. And until then, as always, stay deep.